So in Romans 12, verse 3, Paul tells us that we should honestly evaluate our lives. So we should regard ourselves, he says, with sober judgment, not think of ourselves too highly, and live in accordance with the measure of faith. He says we should live in accordance with the measure of faith that we have been given. So we all have a measure of faith, a measure, if you like, of how much we are willing or able to trust God as we walk with him. And I think it is really important, as Paul says, to be honest about this, to tell ourselves the truth. So let's be honest. I think few of us this morning would have the kind of faith that if today, like if right now in this service, God told you to quit your job, sell your house, give everything you own to the poor, and simply trust God for what you need day to day from this point forward, very few of us could probably just do that right, right away. Let's be real. Um, very few of us would actually be prepared to do that without significant wrestling with God. Now, there are some saints throughout history who have had that kind of faith, um, but there's not many. One of them, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, in fact, on the day that God called him to abandon everything and follow him, he took that quite literally and abandoned everything, including the clothes that he was wearing, which St. Francis saw as a status symbol of his old life as the son of a wealthy merchant. So he took all his clothes off, stripped completely naked, and walked out of the town into his new life as a monk. Now, I do want to say, uh, if you feel like God is calling you to do that this morning, <laughs> please just come and talk to one of the ministry team first. Uh, we'd really like the opportunity to discern that with you before you jump in. Now, it's easy, isn't it, in the midst of ordinary life, uh, for us to become a little stale, perhaps stuck in our faith, um, stop expecting that much will change, settle for a kind of comfortable predictability. Because naturally speaking, and I say that carefully, naturally speaking, we will not go with God beyond what we have faith to trust God for. We will not go beyond, uh, we'll, sorry, we'll not go with God beyond where we have the faith to trust God. However, because God loves us, he doesn't let us remain where we are for very long. God is always at work, always calling us further up and further in, always provoking change, always calling us to greater things. Can I get an amen? Who has experienced that in their life? Just when you start feeling comfortable, God reaches in and starts messing things up and you have to adapt, you have to relearn some things, we have to rediscover what faith means. As Paul says in Philippians 3, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfected, and this is Paul the Apostle speaking, not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfected, but what does he say? I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I press on that I may take up the call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. So he's not content to remain where he is. He's honest about where he is, but he's not content to remain there. His faith is always leaning forward, wanting to lay hold of something new to go deeper, to go further, to go beyond his current capacities. And by God's grace, though it may not feel like it at the time, he often will throw us into situations that feel 
totally beyond our capabilities. I've experienced this many times in my life. God calls me to take up things which, naturally speaking, feel completely beyond my capabilities, beyond what I think I can handle, beyond what you think you can handle, totally beyond, as it were, our measure of faith. Why? Because I think for the simple reason that you will not grow unless you are challenged. You will not grow unless you're challenged. You will not grow unless you face some kind of opposition to which you have to either rise to that challenge or, or admit to yourself that you can't handle it and you shrink back. So when this happens, when we are challenged by God to take on new things, we have two choices. We can either try to control the situation or we can change and grow, but you cannot do both. Now, I can't remember who said this, but I heard this from another preacher years ago, and I think it's so true. You can have control in life. You can have control or you can have growth. You cannot have both. In life, you can either have control or you can have growth, but you don't get both. Now, by saying that you can have control or growth, I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise wisdom in our affairs, discernment in terms of how we lead our lives. Definitely not saying that. Of course, we should exercise wisdom and discernment and use our minds, use our reason. God has given us these things for a reason. But embracing growth, friends, means embracing change, which requires embracing uncertainty, which requires letting go of control. Let me say that again. Embracing growth means embracing change. And embracing change means embracing uncertainty, which requires letting go of control. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And you'll only do that if by faith, friends, by faith you are prepared to say, I may not understand all of what you're doing with me, God. This is really hard, but I will trust you. I will trust that you are good. I will trust that you have a purpose for me in all of this. And I know that you are with me no matter what happens. You are with me no matter what happens. This is what Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. I will be with you always, even to the very end. Always, even when, as we've learned from Jonah, even when we're on the run from God, even when we're trying to hide from God, even when we're unfaithful and disobedient, God is still with us, still calling us, still provoking us, still trying to move us deeper in and further up. Here's another way to put it. Your faith will only grow if you are prepared to let God take you beyond what you think you have faith for. Your faith will only grow if you're prepared to let God take you beyond what you think you have faith for. And when that happens, it can feel like you've been thrown overboard. Because I know you know this, but it's only in those moments of testing when we realize what our measure of faith really is. And we also realize that our measure of faith may have been enough for yesterday, may have been enough for yesterday's battles, may have been enough for what we were faced with yesterday, but it isn't enough for today. And it certainly isn't enough for what God intends to do with us in the future. And so then like Jonah, when we cry out to God in our distress, when we face situations that do seem beyond us, 
The promise is that God will help us. He will hear us and answer us and he will help us to grow through the struggle. I believe that and I've certainly experienced that over and over again in my life. Just when I thought things were gonna fall apart, just when I thought that this faith journey has led me to somewhere that is gonna end badly for me, God always comes through. You can have control or you can have growth but you cannot have both. And so here, as we looked at last week, Jonah is being called to do something, to preach God's word to the Ninevites, which he clearly doesn't have faith for, right? That's obvious, he does not have faith for this. So instead, he's running from God, he's running from his calling, he's resigned his appointment as a a prophet, and he's trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can. Of course, this is foolish, as we read last week, totally stupid. There is nowhere Jonah realizes that he can run where God is not already present. He is the creator of the earth and the seas. So this is meant to be like, we're all reading this, rolling our eyes, like, come on, Jonah, get with it. But there are a few possible reasons why Jonah is on the run. Maybe you recognize yourself in some of these. The first one is fear. Maybe he fears what will happen if he goes to Nineveh. If he goes and preaches to the Ninevites, these are dangerous people. He might end up dead. So his fear is well-founded. And so that's possibly one of the reasons why he's running from God, he's afraid. Another is theological. Jonah's theology doesn't have room in it for the God of Israel to be merciful to the Ninevites. They're God's enemies, they deserve judgment. So he's opposing God's will on theological grounds. Oh man, have I ever tried to do that? Try to justify my lack of belief based on the Bible, my lack of faith based on my reasoning from scripture and God's just sitting there going, yeah, well, okay, well, one of these days you'll learn. Another reason possibly is Jonah's own self-understanding, right? His own view of himself, as far as we can tell from Jonah's, the, the minimal information we get about Jonah's life He hasn't been a particularly successful or faithful prophet up to this point, right? So maybe he's running from God because he doesn't feel capable of the task. He just doesn't think he can do it. He's afraid of failure. He just doesn't think he's good enough for this assignment. Maybe you recognize yourself in one of those three or in all three. All this points to, I think, at the bottom Underneath all of that is a lack of faith. He doesn't trust God because he's trying to be the hero of his own story. Jonah's trying to be the hero of his own story. He thinks this is about him. But one of the things you learn as you walk with the Lord is that this is really about the Lord, not about me. And if I'm submitted to his will, he will do with me what he wants to do. And it will be for my joy, absolutely, but I am not the hero of my story. Jesus is, are you with me? You are not the hero of your story. Jesus is the hero of your story. Jesus is the hero of your life. And we so easily substitute ourselves for Jesus, take on a Messiah complex, and think this is really about whether we're good enough or whether we have the natural capacity or whether we have enough belief, when in actual fact, we're simply called to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust him as he leads us. We are filled with his spirit, not our spirit. This is about his power, not ours. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, none of us, not one of us is competent to do this ministry of the new covenant. 
If you're competent to do the ministry of the new covenant, you're in the wrong religion. None of us is competent. We trust only in the power of Jesus. And as he works on us, he shapes us, transforms us, disciples us to be the men and women that we need to be to follow his will and his way. And so Jonah's having a crisis of faith, as we talked about last week, a crisis of identity. He's trying to build his identity and create his future without having to rely on God, without reference to God. He wants to get away from God, do his own thing. And as we spoke about last week, this is actually the very meaning of sin, to try and make life work without reference to God, to be our own gods. And we read this from Kierkegaard. Um, I, think, I think it was Linda, maybe someone else on the team last week that said, you know, I think in one of the things you do is make sure that in every sermon you have a theologian whose name is unpronounceable. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish uh, philosopher and theologian, he wrote this in 1874. Sin is to despair of getting a self from God and then the despair of seeking to be oneself without God. In, what he's saying is that in order like to do this, to try and build a self, uh, on your own terms leads to despair. And then that despair will define your life. Ultimately, it leads to chaos and to meaninglessness. This is what the storm in Jonah 1 represents as a metaphor anyway. Jonah's trying to run from God and all it's doing is creating chaos and despair and meaninglessness and danger. This, and, you know, and all of us do this, don't we? we? We think we can build this safe little space on this ship you know, doing our own thing in the midst of this raging ocean of despair. And we just try to hold on. If only we would let go and trust God, he would do amazing things through each and every one of us. You can have control or you can have growth. You don't get both. And ironically, this idea of building your own identity and expressing your own identity is now the greatest virtue in our culture. Ironically, it's the way in which we Christians understand the root of sin and it's become one of the greatest virtues in our culture. You can see how far our culture has shifted away from a biblical Christian worldview. Um, so to express your own identity above all else is now um, the point of life. It's what people strive to do. And we're being asked to enthusiastically support everyone's self-expression, even if we think it's unhelpful or hurtful or harmful to them. So it runs right against the grain of the Christian faith, this idea that we can build an identity, build a life on our own terms. Uh, but in actual fact, as followers of Jesus, aren't we called to do the opposite of that? We're called to what? Deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Not our own will, Jesus. Not build our own identity, but take on the character and identity of Jesus. Now, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity, and I was going to read this last week, but had to get it in this Sunday. This, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, not only do I need to include a theologian whose name is unpronounceable, there must always be a C.S. Lewis quote in my sermons. Um, so here we go. Lewis writes, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly we become ourselves or ourselves that we become. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own hereditary and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself 
becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. Desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other people's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours. And yours, just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come as you are looking for him. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Isn't that just so good? That is so, so good. And this is effectively what Jonah comes to terms with when he asks the sailors to throw him overboard. He realizes at that moment, he's been on the run from God, this is no good. The only option is for him to turn and to die. Now we'll explore that. But the point is to try and build a life apart from God just can't be done. Why? Because we were made for relationship with God. This is what it means to be human. So to try and build a life apart from relationship with God is a denial of what it actually means to be a human being created in God's image. There is no other source of identity, no other God powerful enough, no other idol, least of all ourselves, that can possibly satisfy the deepest longings and desires of our hearts. As David Zahl in his fascinating book about grace called Low Anthropology, uh, and he's commenting on why people these days feel so burned out. Like, have you heard the term, we're in a burnout culture? Like, everyone's tired, everyone's burned out, everyone's stressed, everyone's anxious. And he wants to try and figure out why. And he writes this, it's easy to blame smart technology and social media for our collective burnout. But the problem runs deeper than the tools we've used to get there. Anne Helen Peterson, the journalist who put the term on the map, that is burnout culture, notes that deep down, people know the primary exacerbator of burnout isn't really email or Instagram or a constant stream of news alerts. It's the continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations we've set for ourselves. I really like that. The continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations that we have set for ourselves. Now, the point is here, if you're going to make yourself your own God, then you're going to live under the weight of constant pressure, the constant pressure of impossible expectations. Because what you're trying to build for yourself just cannot work. And so you'll be weighed down with that every single day. So the deeper symptom, according to Zal, is that if you, if you don't believe in God, if you live in a godless universe, is to live in a universe without grace. Think about that. To live in a godless universe is to live in a universe where there is no grace. There's no mercy, there's no forgiveness. The success or failure of your life depends entirely on you. And if it all goes sideways, you've only got yourself to blame. Imagine living with the, the weight of that. So if you're your own God, then you've only got yourself to rely on and you're only got yourself to blame when it doesn't work out. And he goes on to say this, 
If you think your only hope for happiness or betterment lies within you, then you'll give up when your limitations are revealed or when your capacities expire with age. If, on the other hand, you accept those fallibilities, well, then everything is gravy. The world is your playground and setbacks are nothing more than par for the course. And so I think what he's trying to say is that the A life lived under the grace of God or in the grace of God means that we don't have to carry the weight of our own expectations. And when things don't go as we had planned or as we'd hoped, we can turn our faces to heaven. We can trust in the God who made us and we don't have to stress out about making everything fit or being a success every day of our lives. We can allow the setbacks to draw us into the greatest story that we're part of as the children of God. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, as Paul says in Romans 8, and are called according to his purpose. When you're called according to his purpose, then you're not carrying the weight of trying to make your own purpose. Does that make sense? When you're called according to his purpose, you don't have to carry the weight of creating your own purpose. You can trust in the one who made you. And that happens, as Lewis says, only when we are looking to Jesus, when we are looking to Christ for our identity, for our, for our purpose, when our faith is in him. And that means if we face challenges that do seem beyond us, we can trust him, we can look to him and believe that he will carry us through. Now, God is clearly calling Jonah to something that is beyond him beyond what he has faith for. So Jonah's like, no way, this is too much. I'm out of here. And he runs or he tries to. And it's not until God sends this huge storm um, and God is really trying to get Jonah's attention that threatens to kill everyone on the ship that Jonah finally comes to his senses. And finally, as I said before, Jonah realizes what he must do. He must be thrown overboard. He must embrace death in order to save these men. He has to face up to his sins, face up to his failures and throw himself into the judgment and mercy of God. And of course, the good sailors don't wanna do this to the man. They don't wanna kill him. They don't wanna throw him overboard. They try to do everything possible to save Jonah's life, but they can't. And in the end, over Jonah goes. But here's what we discover in this moment is that God never wanted Jonah to die, to sacrifice himself. All along, God has only wanted one thing. He's only wanted Jonah's heart. That's all he's wanted. He's wanted Jonah's heart. Not his death, not his sacrifice. He's wanted Jonah's heart. To trust him and to trust in his love and to trust in his goodness and grace. However, and this is where it gets a bit challenging, if it takes Jonah having to lose everything in order for that to happen, then that is what God is prepared to do. As Jesus once said, there is no point to gaining the whole world and yet losing your soul. And sometimes God allows us to experience suffering, even maybe to lose everything, if it means in the process, he will save our souls. Now you may be in that position today. You may be a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian. Um, Perhaps you realize, have realized last week, this week, that you have made something or someone in your life, everything. It's your God. 
And perhaps that God isn't coming through for you in the way that you most deeply need and you feel like you're drowning. Verse one, Jonah said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. The simple point here, friends, is that when the storms of life hit us, when the waters threaten to overwhelm us, there is only one person who can save us and that is Jesus, no other God we have created or trusted in can deliver us or deliver us uh, from these dangers or to give us the fulfillment that we're seeking for to meet the deepest needs of our lives. Jonah's prayer builds to this whole point in verse eight and he says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Even here, when the, rages, the raging waters drag Jonah down into almost certain death, Jonah cries out to God, and God sends a whale to swallow him. And Jonah has to spend the next three days in darkness, still very much unsure if he's going to survive, where he has to come to terms with his lack of trust. Friends, I really wish it were otherwise. Honestly, I do. But often it's not until trouble or suffering strikes and you don't know if there's gonna be a way out. You don't know how God is gonna rescue you from the situation that you're in. You don't know what tomorrow is gonna to bring. It's in those moments that faith becomes real. You know what I'm talking about. It's in those moments of desperation when faith becomes not just a feeling, not just something that you vaguely believe in, but a matter of life and death. It's not until we are confronted with those situations that the quality of our faith is tested. Have you ever been there? Sometimes you have to go down into the belly of the whale before you'll learn what putting your faith in God really means. Whether you'll have faith that will stand in times of trouble or will crumble when it's tested and you'll go running for the false gods. The truth is, I don't think I've ever met anyone in my life who has gained great wisdom and strength in the Lord. Someone I would look to as a mentor and as um, someone to aspire to whose faith has not been tested, often to breaking point, often to the point where faith is lost for a time. One thing you discover, I think, as you walk with the Lord is that what can feel like a loss of faith is actually not a loss of faith at all. It's only the dying off of old forms of faith that no longer serve its purpose for you will no longer be sufficient for what God is calling you into. And that shift from what you once held onto, past experiences of God, say, things that were the basis of your faith up to that point, when they start to be insufficient and they start to crumble, it really feels like you're losing your faith. But in its place, just as Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot 
germinate and grow and produce much fruit in the same way like these seasons where we're tested, where it feels like our faith is crumbling, is often just the way in which God is preparing a new, richer, deeper, more robust, perhaps more humble and gentle faith to emerge, a faith that has a stronger quality to it but is also more flexible, right? You can have a faith that's really strong but brittle. When it's tested, it'll break. But you might, I think what God wants for us is a faith that's a bit more organic, that is able to flex when things are mysterious or difficult, that don't break but are able to change and able to grow. Uh, A faith equipped to deal with the uncertainties and pain of life without having to need an explanation for everything. You know, the the saints in my life that I've really looked up to and who've been an inspiration to me have been those who have been through those seasons where the pain and uncertainty of life has tested their faith to breaking point, but out of that has grown something deeper and richer and stronger. A faith that's grounded more in the character of Jesus and in the faithfulness of Jesus than in their own ability to be obedient, in their own righteousness, we might say. I remember when we were first church planting in Vancouver, I experienced this, I'll tell you what. Um, It was the Sunday after our first public service and a young couple had come into our church who were not believers. They'd seen the sign out the front of the building that we were meeting in, came in, met Jesus, got radically transformed and that was amazing. Uh, And we started to see all kinds of stories like that emerge. But I realized very quickly that the task then of leading folks who are just coming to faith and who needed significant discipleship and transformation was actually beyond me. Like I was 24 years old, what the heck did I know? And here I am trying to help people to discover faith in Jesus and grow and change and be transformed and discipled. And I'm facing spiritual opposition and challenges that I just did not feel equipped for. Like we didn't have enough money. We were always under pressure. We didn't have enough volunteers. We didn't have enough people. Our whole church was in a van every Sunday. We'd drive it to the venue, set up, pack it away. And then throughout the week, we'd try to gather wherever we could. It was just like, I was, felt like I was being tested and stretched in every possible direction almost a breaking point. I realized that I just did not have the faith necessary to trust God for what I'd just been thrown into. But in that moment, you also realize again, just as I said before, I am not the hero of my story. Jesus is the hero of my story. And as I looked to him, I was amazed surprised, blessed over and over again as God provided what we needed, brought the people that we needed, helped me with what I needed. And all of that experience of going well beyond what I thought I was capable of enabled me to experience God in ways that I just never would have if I'd not taken those steps of faith. So you can have control or you can have growth, but you don't get both. Really sorry to say, and if you're a control freak here this morning, we'll pray for you afterwards. But what does Jonah realize in the belly of the whale? He's not the hero of his story either. Salvation is from the Lord. That becomes the central confession of the whole book of Jonah. Salvation is not from you, it is from the Lord. Now, this might seem obvious then that salvation doesn't come from us. 
The point is, friends, it's not about our obedience or lack of obedience. It's not about our performance or lack of performance. It's not about that, it's about the Lord. He alone can save us, he alone can deliver us. How does his salvation come to us? It comes to us by grace, always, always by grace. Not by any other means, not by works, lest anyone should boast, but by grace through, by grace through faith, by grace through faith. In other words, what does grace mean? It means that God's salvation is always unearned. It's always unearned and it's always undeserved. It's always unearned. Can we say this? It's unearned, ready? Unearned and it's undeserved, undeserved. Which means if you're trying to earn it this morning, it's not grace. If you're trying to deserve it, it's not grace. In the belly of the whale where Jonah's been stripped of everything, he doesn't even know if he's gonna survive. He has no idea what's gonna happen next. You know in the little kids' Bibles, it has like Jonah in the whale and there's a little light and he's like having a nice time. It's like the, you know, the whale's tongue is a very comfortable little mattress. Like, can you imagine being inside a fish for three days? Jonah had not been a good man up to this point. In fact, at the moment God rescues him, he's an outright rejection of God. And I just think that is so helpful, so comforting, that even in my worst moments, God is still at work in my life. Even when I'm running from God, God is still pursuing me. Even when I don't have faith, God is still moving me into spaces where I'll learn what it means to have faith. God's salvation is never dependent on our past success or our future performance. It is only based on grace, only on grace. As Paul says in Titus 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. You this morning feel that you don't have what it takes, you're not good enough, you haven't earned this, you are exactly where you need to be. So take heart. I'm gonna finish with this. In the Lord of the Rings, in the very beginning of the book, by the way, it's, you know it's an awesome sermon when you get both a Lewis and a Tolkien quote. <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings, in the very beginning of the book, this is how the hobbits are described. It says, they heeded less and less the world outside where dark things moved until they came to think that peace and plenty were the rule in the world and the right of all sensible folk. You might say they had a measure of faith, right? The hobbits. And then the four particular hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, 
are drawn out into the real world. They have to leave their comfortable, safe shire and go out into the real, go into Nineveh, as it were, go out into the real world and they struggle with it. They're not used to a world of such darkness and evil where there's so many bad things. And as they say, so many tall things. They don't immediately become courageous. If you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, it takes some time. They can't handle it for a long time. Then one of them has a transformation. It's on the battlefield. And it's one of my favorite moments in the book. This one hobbit, Merry, is on a battlefield fighting outside the city of Gondor. Suddenly, looming over him is one of the Nazgul, the leader of the Nazgul, the witch king of Angmar, one of the most evil characters in the book, a kind of ancient evil sorcerer. And it says in this moment that such horror was on him that Mary was blind and sick. Such horror was on him that Mary was blind and sick. He's so scared he doesn't even know what to do. He's been living in his safe little world, his safe little bubble for the whole of his life. He thought that peace and plenty was the rule in Middle Earth and the right of all sensible folk. He comes out and sees that the world is not like this and he can't adjust. And now he has this evil thing in front of him, this challenge that he can't overcome. And he says, I'm just gonna go under. This is the moment I die. He's blind and he's sick. But then he sees one person, you know the story, off to his left, Lady Eowyn, standing up to this great dark sorcerer and who's ready to die not only for him, but for everyone else around him. And the text says this, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly, the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. Now, if you know what happens, he then stabs the Nazgul in the leg, which makes the way for the Nazgul to be defeated. But point is, I get a lot of comfort from this line, where it says, pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. Now, I get a lot of comfort from that line because I'm like him, and I have a sense, perhaps this morning, that you are as well. We have lived in a culture of peace and plenty and it has completely shaped our faith where we expect that life will always be peace and plenty and comfort. We've become used to a comfortable life and that's the frame of reference we now think of or we read through when we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The point I think I'm trying to make here this morning is I feel like the world is changing, don't you? And I feel like things in the West are changing as well. And I think that the peace and plenty that we have grown accustomed to may not be what the future holds for us. Whatever happens, it really doesn't matter. What really matters is that the faith we had in Jesus might have been good enough or sufficient for the old world that we've inhabited. It's not enough for the world that's emerging. We are going to need a new kind of faith. We're gonna need a faith where we experience the courage of what it means to be a child of God, to rise up within us. We need to feel like Mary did, the courage of our race as members of the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. So this morning, what I wanna do is pray for all of us that our hearts too might be filled with wonder, 
at the immensity of the good news that we've received in Jesus. And if we look to the one who was willing to die for us, willing to give his all for us, then I think the kind of courage that he had, our Lord Jesus, to face the cross, to bear its shame, to carry its weight, will be the kind of courage that can be kindled in our souls as well. God is leading us, church, beyond where we're comfortable. We can either have control or we can have growth, but we won't get both. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are always with us and you always will be. And your perfect love casts out all fear. So I pray that we would be reawakened to the wonder of your love this morning. Where we've become bored or um, frustrated, comfortable, or disappointed, Lord, I pray that you would meet with each of us just as we need it right now. I just want to pause here in this place before we go on into the rest of our day. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. If for the joy set before him, endured the cross, denied its shame, and has now sat down at the right hand throne of God. I pray that we too, Lord, as we keep our eyes on you, may run with endurance the race that's been marked for us. Help us to come to our own Jonah moment. We realize that there is nowhere we can go, nothing we can do that will be sufficient for us if we're trying to build our life without you. Pray, Lord, that we would repent like Jonah, we'd be willing to be thrown into the raging seas of your judgment and mercy. And maybe there's folks here this morning that feel like they are already in the belly of the whale and are really struggling to find hope. How is this going to end? Where is this taking me? Oh Lord, I pray that you will help each of us to have the kind of faith that is willing to say very simply, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes only from you. I cannot save myself. I cannot earn this and I don't deserve it. Salvation comes only from the Lord. And Lord, I don't see right now perhaps where that salvation is taking me. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to let go of control and to embrace growth, change. Oh Lord, we need your mercy. In your mercy, hear our prayer. In your mercy, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name.